0: Two weeks is about as long as we'll push the trip. We start to run out of bait, and then we also uh, run out of time on the crab that we are putting in the tank. And, you know, some of those some of those two-week trips, you only come up with, you know, one tank, 70,000 pounds of crab, right? 60,000 yeah, pounds. And uh, so the good comes with the bad. This is Fishtales, a seafood podcast.
1: I'm John Sussman. The Bering Sea is one of the most intense patches of ocean on Earth. It covers over 2 million square kilometres and is bordered on the east and northeast by Alaska, on the west by the Russian Far East, on the south the Aleutian Islands and on the far north the Arctic Circle. Strong winds, freezing temperatures and icy water are normal conditions. The combination makes for some of the most ferocious waves on the planet where the water can rise and fall 30 feet on a normal day. It is remote, desolate and intensely dangerous. What would possibly drive anyone into these waters? It's the hunt for some of the most valuable seafood to be found. The Bering Sea is renowned to have one of the most diverse and productive marine ecosystems on the planet, with species such as king crab, apelio and tanner crabs, wild salmon, pollock and the famous black cod. Commercial fishing is lucrative business in the Bering Sea. On the US side alone, commercial fisheries catch approximately a billion dollars worth of seafood annually, while Russian bearing Sea fisheries are thought to be double that. Captain Sean Dwyer began his career as commercial crab fisherman at the age of 13 on his parents' boat, the Jennifer A. Sean is a salmon fisherman during the June to July summer season, but during the punishing winter, he's one of the rare experts who turns his fishing skills on an industry he knows well. Very few people are going to risk their lives in the kind of weather that the Bering Sea throws up, and fewer still have the basket of skills needed to not only survive, but thrive in the conditions. Fishing in the Bering Sea requires a dedication and mindful attitude that few other industries demand. Sean Dwyer is both dedicated and mindful.
0: Yeah, my name is Sean Dwyer, and uh, I'm from Seattle, Washington, Brie and I live just north of Seattle in a town called Edmonds, and I uh, fish crab in the Bering Sea. Commercial fishing is uh, is our family business. Um, my uh, my mom is actually uh, from Alaska, and on her side of the family, I'm a fifth generation Alaska fisherman, so it's in the blood for sure. Um, my parents met on a boat in Alaska, and then started their uh, started their commercial fishing business, which I am now. Uh, a co-owner and uh an operator of right and we manage the business and and uh yeah so my parents bought a boat in the in the 80s and uh <clears throat> my sister who's older than me she um her name's Brenna Brenna A right um she uh she was on the boat when she was you know six months old and uh And then that boat would work in the summertime. My mom and sister would go up and hang out with my dad in the summertime. And then in the wintertime, it would catch crab. And um, so that was before my time around. But that boat actually, um, it sank the year that I was born in uh, 1992. And it sank in January. I was born in March. So I was born into our family's commercial fishing business that uh, had just been devastated by by the, this boat sinking, the St. George. And um, so <clears throat> when I was really little, my dad was um, – he was diversified in the industry. He was kind of working for different shipyards, hydraulics companies, uh, fishing operations. And and then uh, a couple of years down the line, my parents bought another boat, the Jennifer A., which is named after my mom. And that's the boat that is uh, – has my earliest memories. We would – we would go up in the summertime and my dad would relieve the, uh, the skipper that he had running the boat year round. And we'd come on with the whole family and I can remember, uh, you know, sitting on the, sitting on the bow kind of, Hanging out, playing with my little matchbox cars, you know, and and I can remember one of them rolling out the scupper and, and falling overboard and thinking, I'm never going to get that back. Like, that's gone forever. <laughs> Bought that boat in 90, uh, 96. I was four years old. And, and uh, yeah, there's photos from that first year where I'm four and five years old, my sister at uh, six and seven years old, and we were on the boat together with my parents. And, and then, uh, yeah, I mean... We grew up. We grew up with a little bit of, um, you know, f- with with family medical issues. My mom is a cancer survivor. My dad had ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease, and um, so those early years on the boat, everything was really good. And then my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and and uh, you know, obviously, um, treatment and time at home kind of uh, uh, um, changed some things for my parents. And then shortly after that uh, my dad was diagnosed with ALS. And so that was when I was, uh, I was 13 when he was diagnosed and I was at a a young age where I was pretty impressionable and made a kind of made a conscious decision that, you know, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to be a commercial fisherman like my dad was. And I want to learn as much as I can from him while I can. And, uh, and yeah, so that kind of really is when I, I, I kind of flipped the switch from like, you know, Hey, it's not just fan you know fun family stuff that we do you know and it's different because nobody else's parents are doing this with them it's just uh you know it's, it's it can be a career and if i uh if i want to do it i have an opportunity so i started kind of working working on the boat at a young age and spending my summers in alaska working on the boat for different captains that we had hired and and whatnot and so yeah it was uh it was a diverse upbringing for sure
1: Sean's passion for the ocean and love of boats was nurtured from an early age, but it was the vision and drive of his ailing father that helped him go from enthusiastic amateur to the youngest captain to ever command a commercial fishing boat in the Bering Sea.
0: So I would, uh, I'd go to school, you know, throughout the year, and then I'd, you know, I'd, I'd miss the last couple of days of school to hop on the boat and I'd be in Alaska on a, on a boat from, you know, beginning of June to the end of August, beginning of September, and then hop right back into school, and I would work in the shipyard, um, you know, as, as soon as I was able to drive, <laughs> I would drive my dad down to the, you know, the shipyard, and, and, uh, when he could get around, you know, he, he, we would, he'd put me to work, basically, you know, chipping paint, and, and uh, and painting, and organizing things, and, and then, uh, you know, I'd, I'd work in the shipyard on the weekends, or, you know, after school, and, and then when I, I graduated high school, I uh, I went to a technical college um, and, and focused on diesel engines and heavy equipment. And uh, so, you know, tech school was set up. To where I had class early in the morning, and then all my my midday and afternoons were free, so you know that was the same thing i'd I'd work all summer on the boats and then I'd go to my technical college in the morning and then work in the shipyard all day and afternoon so but that was really a good time for me because i I spent a lot of time with my dad, who at that point his a l s luke Gehrig's disease was was you know, it was hitting him pretty hard. He was in a wheelchair. Um, he had issues breathing. Uh, so, you know, I was kind of his uh, his his eyes and and hands down on the boat. And you know, I'd send him photos while I was down there working on things. And you know, he he'd tell me what to do, basically, just okay, you're going to want to loosen this bolt, and then reach behind. There'll be another bolt back there. And you know, it was it was it was funny. You know, it was a, it was a cool cool way to learn kind of all the knowledge that he had stored up over the years. And and for me, it gave me a, a, a real advantage moving forward because I had that time with him, and he was, uh, he was just a really knowledgeable guy. Like I said, I started working on the summer times when I was about 13 years old. And then um, um, as soon as I was done with uh, tech school at uh, 20 years old, I started going, and uh, I've you know my first year, I think I worked 10 months out of the year on the boat as a deckhand and then engineer in the summertime and then um did that for a couple three years i guess you know those real long seasons and and uh and then in 2015 or excuse me i guess in 20 uh 2014 i uh, i started running the the Brenna a in the summertime and then uh so i ran the boat 2014 summertime i fished 2014 winter and then 2015 summertime i ran the boat and then um i had an opportunity to um get some more fishing rights so that we could run both boats in the wintertime instead of just one boat and uh so yeah in 2015 uh 23 years old i uh i took the brenna out and went fishing for western tanner crab in the bering sea and that was uh at the time i was the youngest captain in the bering sea and uh as far as i know there's there's one other guy that i know that started when he was 22 uh i know a couple other guys that started when they were 23 also but uh, i think as far as you know the history of crab fishing in the bering sea 23 is pretty darn early or young An
1: experienced and well-trained captain is uniquely qualified to maintain the big picture view of competing priorities such as weather, conditions, time, vessel fitness and suitability, crew ability and in the case of a skipper on a commercial fishing vessel in the Bering Sea, a sixth sense on where and when crabs are to be found. Being a good captain goes well beyond boat handling and fishing abilities though and can be a challenge for a mature seasoned leader Taking on such a role at
0: 23 is a demand few young men face in their careers. I can remember when I left with my first load of pots on the boat vividly. Um, you know, it was, it's, <clears throat> the Bering Sea is, is treacherous for many different reasons. I think the biggest of which in my mind that stands out is uh, it's, It's kind of the birthing ground for a lot of these low-pressure system storms that hit the western coast of North America. And the storms that come through, um, they can be huge. I mean, huge, like, depressions that, you know, are hurricanes in other parts of the world. In in the Bering Sea, they're just standard procedure. So you get these big depressions that lead to a lot of wind, but the other factor is, is, uh, is tide. So you know you can have a, a day where it's you know blowing 35 40 knots and every six hours that tide direction of the water is changing and when the wind and tide are against each other the the wave factor gets crazy I mean they'll you know they'll they'll stack up on you and all of a sudden you'll be in 15 20 foot seas and then you know here comes some 30 footers and they're breaking because the tide's running and I think that's something that People don't quite understand is that the Bering Sea, when you look at it on a chart, it it looks like just this big body of water, but but really the topography of the the bottom of the ocean floor, there's a big shelf, and it's called the Eastern Bering Sea Shelf, and there's a couple different canyons that are on the edges of this shelf, but it's a big vast desert out there, you know, that's that's deep. I mean, it's uh, it's anywhere from like eighty to well, it, it shallows up, but the edge is about eighty fathoms. Fathom being six feet, and then it shallows all the way up as you get towards the mainland. But what that is is you get you know water that's two miles deep, and then in in <laughs> in a short span of distance, it goes up to you know five hundred feet deep, and uh, you get these big upwellings of current, and then that tide just smokes across the the big desert that is the Bering Sea shelf. And uh, the tide is really, really deceiving. You know, it's something that when I was running the boat, I didn't fully understand at at first. And uh, when you're a deckhand, and it's crappy weather, it's just crappy weather. But when you're a captain and you're trying to drive a boat through it and keep a crew safe, it's um, it's it's difficult.
1: Fishing in the Bering Sea requires fishermen to be adept at fishing for a range of seasonal species throughout the year target catch is decided depending on the biological season along with the fishing quotas and species populations. Conditions in these waters however remain pretty consistent. Rough and more rough.
0: I'll give you the kind of the synopsis of the the seasons. We have our first Bering Sea crab fishery starts October 15th and that's Bristol Bay red king crab. So uh, our boats and I would say 90% of the fleet are based out of Dutch Harbour which is uh, an island in the Aleutian chain, just kind of uh, uh, dead south of the center of the Bering Sea. And so October will go out for king crab, and that season is typically short, maybe a week or two, come back in and uh, uh, offload that, and then... Um, you know, on a on average year, uh we may go fish some of that Bering Sea Tanner crab, which is like uh in between the size of a king crab and uh a snow crab. A snow crab, the opilio are small, the tanners get a little bigger. But um yeah, we'll go fish that and then <clears throat> come home for a little bit, and then after the first of the year we go up for Opelio. And um, uh, so When you're departing for king crab, we might be fishing 200 to 275 miles northeast of Dutch Harbor, kind of in the the Bristol Bay area of Bering Sea. And then uh, when we fish for tanners and opies, we fish more up uh, in the middle or the west or even the way northwest of the Bering Sea. And so, for example, when you depart out on an Opelio trip, these last couple of years we've been fishing almost all the way up near the Russian border. And, um, two years ago I was fishing literally on the border within a quarter mile. And, uh, you know, that's a, it's a three day run from Dutch Harbor straight to the Northwest. So <laughs> you leave, you leave, uh, you're already way out West and you're pretty far North when you're in Dutch. And then, you know, you get all the way up, above 60 degrees north and you know you're at the russian the u.s russian border and uh um you're up there you know i mean you're you're a long ways from any sort of support you know for the helicopter to get to you the coast guard helicopters to get to you it's it's a long journey for them and sometimes if the weather you know is treacherous they they can't even get there so um But, you know, that's where the crab have been. And when you look at these fisheries and you think, okay, how much time and effort am I going to spend? Do I want to drive to where the crab are or do I want to try to find something somewhere else? Well, you just go where the crab are and that's where you make money. But, yeah, you're out there.
1: With multiplying regulations, the fishing season for certain species shortened significantly and the challenge of commercial returns there is a demand for fishermen to race to catch as many crabs as possible in short periods of time. Trip planning is vital to minimise the time away and maximise the catch. Moving the half tonne steel pots around the deck and around the sea floor requires both plenty of muscle and plenty of brains.
0: Three day trip to the north, you get up there, you're going to get there and you're, you, know, you set your gear off. So, you know, we, we kind of work around the clock you know the the schedule is set by the fishing not necessarily what we as fishermen want to do uh so you get there no matter what time of day or night you set all your gear out and what i like to do when i first start if i have no information is i'll spread out pretty wide i might cover like let's say uh if i have 120 pots to work with or you know 200 pots to work with i'll uh I'll spread out to where I'm covering maybe a 40 by 40 mile box or maybe a 20 by 40 mile box. And what I try to do is I try to stretch my gear out, um, the spacing in between my my pots and my strings of pots to where I can get the best sample of uh, the terrain that I want to fish, right? So as far as crab, finding crab goes, what what I do is I look for I look for the bottom where they would want to be, you know, and that's typically muddy, muddy bottom for, for our crab. They don't like rocks and they don't like, you know, really steep edges or anything like that. So I look for those, those muddy flats. And then I look at the tide and I think about what the current is doing on the bottom and how that might affect those areas. And then, I, uh, I start to spread some gear out because I don't know where the crab are hiding, but I do know where they like to hang out as far as the, you know, the terrain or, or the bottom structure. And, uh, and then you kind of just start taking samples, you know, so you spread everything out. You might let them soak on that first, uh, that first set for, for 12, 18, 24 hours, and then start checking, so, you know, if you haul a pot on 18 hours and it has no crab in it, it's probably not going to have any crab in 24 hours. But if you haul one on 18 hours and it's got, let's say, 180 snow crab in it, that's pretty good. You know, maybe on your 24 hours, you got over 200 and, you know, 36 hours, you're getting close to 400. So I'll come back and I'll I'll just start kind of collecting the gear and collecting data. And those first couple days can be slow because – you're spreading the gear out you're kind of taking a sample of of where you think the crab are where you think they should be and then you circle back and when you find something you uh you can set set your gear on it actually fairly tight and um and then you can kind of hone in on them and then you know once you're on some crab like let's say you might take a couple of days to find something three four days to find something and uh you do find some crab. I mean, you can get on fishing. That's, that's, you, know, you could fill the boat in two more days. And for us, that's, uh, that's essentially a quarter million pounds of crab. So, um, goes fast. So we fish, uh, um, seven by seven foot by uh, 34 inch tall. So if you, you know, they're seven by seven footprint and then they're 34 inch tall when they're sitting on the seafloor. So they weigh about, uh, about 800 pounds. Um, when you're, you know, if you're having to fish out deeper, you're adding more line to them. And then, um, you know, that line, there's some more weight there, but, um, uh, but yeah, they're seven by seven by 34 inch steel boxes, <laughs> basically with, uh, with web strung in them. And then, uh, you know, obviously we bait them up and launch them over the side and come back and pick them up later. Some of the best trips I've ever been on, you know, we've filled the boat in like 64, or 72 hours. And, you know, some of the longest ones are you, know, you go for two weeks. And uh, two weeks is about as long as we'll push the trip. We start to run out of bait. And then we also uh, run out of time on the crab that we are putting in the tank. Um, and, you know, some of, those, some of those two-week trips, you only come up with – you know one tank 70,000 pounds of crab right 60,000 pounds and and, uh, so the good comes with the bad
1: managing commercial fishing activity is a complicated job one in which every small decision can have a far-reaching consequence whether to regulate fishing based on season area or gear type and whether to allot quotas for fishing activity and if so how many and to whom The Bering Sea Fishery has been operating under a strict managed quota system since around 2005. And whilst this can be frustrating, it's a management measure that fishermen must both respect and abide by.
0: It all depends on what our total allowable catch for the fleet is. So the way that our fishery works is we're on a quota system. Uh, There's IFQs that are allocated to to individuals. And uh, so we have... Uh, kind of a collection of different boats and different people's quota that we're going out to harvest. And essentially, we uh, we we have the right to harvest a piece of the pie, right? And if that overall pie is larger or smaller based on any given year, then that's kind of how much that we go out and catch. So, um, for example, um, in 2018, 21 uh last you know years opelio season we we had just over 600,000 pounds to catch so it was about four trips and then um this year we had a 90% reduction in our total allowable catch which made our piece of the pie at about you know 59,000 pounds so we went from having you know like Multiple full boatloads of crab to one tank of crab to catch in, in just one year's time. That's how how big of a, a shift our stock has uh, experienced recently. Sean Dwyer's incredible
1: story is too good for us to cut short. In a Fishtail Seafood Podcast first, we'll be continuing his story in part two, where we will hear about life on board a vessel fishing in the Bering Sea and becoming part of the incredible TV series Deadliest Catch.
0: Tragedy in our fishery is is kind of, you know, what spawns some of the uh, allure to people. It's also like why we have the program called Deadliest Catch is because it, it was the deadliest fishing job you could do, one of the deadliest jobs in the world. Tune in next week to
1: hear more of Sean's story. This is Fishtails, a seafood podcast, a Deep in the Weeds production. I'm John Sussman. Follow us on Instagram at Seafood Podcast, or email us at fishtailspodcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay tuned for more tales from beneath the surface of the seafood world every Friday on your podcast app.